You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. I noticed something that when he read, when someone turns and says, I repent seven times, you must forgive him. And I heard some, uh, some grunts <laughs> under the breath. Oh, we'll get to that. Well, I did some, uh, <clears throat> I did some serious research for this. I, I went out and I watched the, uh, the Batman movies, all of them, the more modern ones, and there was a scene in one of them, one of the Dark Knight ones, I think it's Dark Knight Rises, where, <clears throat> where the, um, the bad guys, it's Bane if you've seen the movie, um, good bad guy name, they take, um, they, they capture all these police officers, and they put them on a total mockery of a trial, and they say, you have two choices, you either have death or exile. And they've taken all their weapons, and of course the bad guys have their weapons, and so everybody's looking and going, well, I'm not going to choose death, I'm going to choose exile. And exile, if you've seen the movie, is um, exile is they walk out and they say, walk that way, and it is a huge um, river that is iced over, or a huge lake, I guess, that's iced over, and exile means they have to walk across this very thin ice, and all it is is uh, inevitably they're going to fall. And so the scene is, they've chosen exile, and so they're, they're walking like this, very tenuously, and then periodically, and the guy who directs it does a brilliant job, as, he, as they're walking, periodically you just see, and someone just falls through the ice. And then they're walking very tenderly, and somebody else falls through the ice. And I'm, but I'm watching them walk and try to sort of spread out their weight and go slowly and watch where the other guy just walked. And they're, they're, they're literally walking on thin ice, just waiting for the inevitable when they're going to fall through. Now, spoiler alert, Batman saves the day. I'll just cut to the end and I'll tell you that. But as I am watching them walk across this ice, so, so, so carefully, knowing in just a moment everything is going to change, I thought this is a great picture of relationships in America in 2022. You've got friends. You've got maybe some family members that you're trying to navigate. I hope this topic doesn't come up. If he says this, if she says this, if this comes up, then all of a sudden, boom, relationships in trouble. And so I'm watching people walk and just navigating and talking about how they have to navigate conversations at the office, and it just seems so difficult. So I've found at least three things, three reasons why it's even more difficult today than maybe it was, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. This is just Jim's list here. Three things I've noticed. We've lost a common set of rules. We've lost kind of a common idea of, we'll talk about some more of these in a minute, but like just general kindness, for example. But we used to, like, especially growing up in the South, like, even if you weren't a Christian or didn't know what it was, you kind of thought what the Bible said was better. And we sort of had this, this ethic that, that sort of lined up, morally anyway, a lot with the Christian life. And so whenever you were interacting with somebody, you sort of had that you could come back to, and we just don't have that anymore. I'm talking about people outside the church. You just don't have that anymore. Don't say we have the law or the Constitution to come back to because what gets, you know, so icy, so dicey is people arguing about which laws we should have. That's the world that we're living in. So we've lost that common point of rules. And then the second one I've noticed is I've noticed a real lack of personal responsibility being taken in our culture. I've noticed a lot of finger pointing happen in our culture. 
well, I did something wrong, you did something wrong, and what I'm gonna do is spend all the time just telling you how you are doing everything wrong. The other person goes, good idea, I like that plan, I will tell you how you are doing everything wrong. So there's no reconciliation, no listening. I'm overgeneralizing, of course. But we've lost that common rules, we have this finger-pointing thing, and then I also, I just notice, we don't know how to forgive, and every piece of media you see either says, oh, well, just time heals all wounds, so we just kind of ignore it, we just bury it down. Or it's like you're really, really hurt, but you go, well, it's okay, it's okay, and you work through it, which is so not realistic. Or say things like, um, what you did to me is unforgivable, and so I will never, ever forgive you, and so they just live in bitterness. And none of those, we all know that none of those work, none of those are really good, but very rarely does a, a show or a movie or something take the time to walk through like healthy forgiveness. So we have terrible models of what it looks like to forgive one another. And so we're living in this time, we have lost common rules that we both sit under, we understand. We've got this finger pointing and loss of personal responsibility, and then you go, no one knows how to forgive anymore. And so what can happen in the culture, one of two things that I see, and this is even for Christians here, one is isolation. It's just too icy out there, I'm not gonna even walk out on the ice, I can connect with everybody right here. And so it's just, I'll isolate, I'm never really gonna have a great depth of relationship, too scary, too tenuous. It's hard to invest in something like that and know that it could be gone like that. What does isolation lead to? Do I need to go through the list? Loneliness, mental health issues, anger, bitterness, purposelessness when you're isolated by yourself. That's one thing we do is we isolate. The second thing is sometimes we just acquiesce to the culture. Gosh, it's so hard out there, and it's going to make people mad, so whatever they say, I might just go ahead and go along with it. Neither one of those are pleasing to God, and we have to acknowledge this isn't working, and there's a better way. And I think as Christians, I want to walk you through this here today, I think this is yet another instance where when Christians get together, when there's Christian conflict especially, when there's Christian relationships that we have, that Christian relationships can shine in a culture where everybody else is walking around on thin ice. That shouldn't be the case inside the church. That's what Jesus is going to say, but I am going to tell you, it ain't easy. All right, look at, look at what he says, verse, uh, chapter 17, verse one. He said to his disciples, so this is his followers, these are, these are now we would say Christians, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Temptations to sin are sure to come. He's basically saying there's plenty of temptation out there, let's not bring them into the church as well. I mean, can we just agree that there's many temptations out there that can pull us into sin? One of the things you'll hear me say is clearly, if, I'm, if I find myself in sin, I don't get to finger point and go, well, it's their fault. They're the ones that tempted me. Right? I gotta take personal responsibility for it. But he starts out just by saying there's plenty of temptations in the world. This word for temptation is the word scandalon, where we get the word scandal, but it's the idea of, a, of bait, on a stick, and, he, and that is a good way of visualizing temptation, isn't it? That there's this bait out there that is baiting you to go and to take it, and it's to your detriment. He says there's tons of them out there, plenty of them are out there. He says temptations are gonna come because we live in a broken, fallen world. 
we have to agree there's temptations out there. And, and we tend to think of temptations to sin being just of action or behavior, which is some of them. So th- think about it like this. Um, like, how about uh, the temptation to just not be nice? How basic can we possibly get? Is there a temptation to not be nice in our culture? Of course. How do, how do our leaders talk about each other? How does the media, how does social media talk about each other? There is a pull to say Christians feel free to blast people that are made in the image of God, which James says, don't you ever do that. But the world is doing it. There's, a bait, there's bait out there for us to go, I'm gonna jump right in and practice. I mean, the world is you know, this unkind, I'll just be this unkind. It pulls us, it's a temptation for us. Or another one I was just thinking of, <clears throat> There is temptation in the world today to pass on unverified facts as though they're true. You notice this? Yeah. I, I, I read an article. I haven't been on social media in a long time. I don't know why I was the other day. But I read an article, and I thought, that's actually an interesting article. I am going to share this article. And I read it someplace else. I thought I should share that. And then, I, and then I, a bumblebee came by or something. I just forgot about it. And then I was on social media and I, it was on Twitter. And I said, I'm going to, and I saw somebody else shared it. And I went, oh, I'm going to share that. And so I just hit retweet or something. And before I did, Twitter popped, the little thing popped up and said, would you like to read the article before you share it? And I had read the article, I just read it somewhere else, so Twitter didn't think I did, which means that there has been a problem of people just sharing things and not reading them first. Meaning that Twitter saw this happen so much, they finally said, you should probably read this thing before you share it. This is a temptation in the world today to hear bits and fragments that might back up something we already believe and verify it or not, who cares, we'll just share it. That's a temptation that we have. But it's not just about actions, it's about beliefs. It's about how we think, how we see the world. It is difficult right now, if you don't know what's happening in the schools, especially in Colorado, um, one of the things that's happening, not every teacher, I have the highest of respect for teachers, my sister's a teacher, um, uh, but the, 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 the minefield that teachers are living in right now is a very difficult one, about what they are teaching our kids and how they are being taught to think, how they are being taught to see the world. Even at a very young age, being taught about sexuality, about gender, about race, very, very young age, going after the minds about how they might think. Where as they start to grow up, we we tend to think about actions only about sin, but you think like they are shaping their minds so that they could grow up and and have a worldly mind instead of the mind of Christ. Okay, I have lots of those, but you get the point. There's the world out there is throwing temptations at us. And so he says, temptations to sin are sure to come, but he says, not with my followers. Look what he says. Woe to the one through whom they come. Woe to the one through whom they come. He's already said, there's temptations out there. Now you're my followers, so you have a common set of rules. You have something that you come back to. You buck the trends and you don't go to what is so precious to Americans especially, my opinion. We go to what does God say? And when we're talking with brothers and sisters in Christ, our attitude is we are both followers of God. God will speak, I will listen. The other person says God will speak, I will listen. And we can come back to this and he can guide us in what to do. 
but woe to the one through whom they come. There's plenty of traps out there. And he says, but the one that brings temptation, he says, woe to him. This goes, this goes directly against what the world says about finger pointing. I did my thing, and it might have tempted you to respond unkindly, but you know what, you're responsible for you, so I should be able to do whatever I want. And then the other person goes, well, you, you did your thing and it tempted me. You, you pushed my buttons. You know how to push my buttons. And so I responded in sin, and so it's your fault. And so what happens is so often, like l- let me give you a for instance. I have been with Nikki, so we've been married for 23 years, dated a couple years, so about 25 years. I have never raised my voice to her. I have never cursed at her, which is a very low bar for a Christian husband, by the way, but I've never done either of those things. Now, let's say, I can't even fathom this happening, let's say that we're in a conversation and it gets a little heated and then she knows how to push one of my buttons. And I do those two things that I just said I've never done. What happens in that interaction? What I did was worse. And if I go, because I ramped it up, if I go get with my guys and talk to them, they'll probably say something like, she might have pushed your buttons, but you're still responsible for how you respond. And that's what they should say. But you know who gets off scot-free a lot of times? And this is absolutely hypothetical, but Nikki does. Or in this circumstance, Nikki does, I'm sorry. In this circumstance, the one who did the button pushing oftentimes just goes, well, I just did, it was just a little thing, and what he did is so worse, and so I've kinda got this shelter now because what he did is worse, and therefore what I did is not as big a deal. And what God says here, what Jesus is saying, woe to the one through whom they come. If she pushes my buttons, if I push her buttons, if I tempt somebody into sin, Jesus says, you are accountable as well. Don't you do it. I would sum it up like this. Don't make it more difficult for others to be godly. Don't make it more difficult for others to be godly. Oftentimes, if we're the one that lays the trap, If we're the one that presents the temptation and they respond poorly, we go, well, they did what I thought they would do. And God says, don't finger point and say it's their problem, it's their problem. Own your part in what just happened. Like, I'll give you a couple examples. Um, I bet you there's some different politicians now or former that if I were to stand up here and take a shot at them, some of you would go, yeah. Really what I've just done is I've just pulled you into sin and seeing them as less than someone who bears the image of God. And I have to take responsibility for that. Or what about, I'm thinking within the church, I I actually don't know much of this here, maybe I'm naive, but um, gossip within the church, or the, uh, my favorite thing in the church, I've never, I've not had this here, I have had this exact thing at other churches. Prayer requests are good time to have gossip. So Lord, we should just pray for Randy and Lisa. Sorry if there's a Randy and Lisa. Pray for Randy and Lisa because when she called me the other day and told me that their marriage is on the rocks, Lord, that Randy's been like this. And have you ever been in a place, like I've literally sat in places where people are just sharing gossip in the guise of prayer requests. So what happens? Now, now what happens is all of a sudden people aren't going, oh, I'm not, I'm not praying anymore. I'm gonna go find out what happened with Randy and Lisa after the thing. Right, And so what happened is I've just pulled you out of prayer, I've started some gossip, and now pulled you into it, and it's easy for us to go, well, that's up to you if you respond or not. And God says, you take responsibility if you pull people into that. 
or it's not, even, it's not even just what we do. Again, it's our thoughts. If I just start complaining and complaining and complaining and it causes discontentment in your life that wasn't there before, sure, you can fight against that and you can go, nope, that's Jim's issue, not mine, but I am making it easier for you to fall into the sin of discontentment. Or if I were just up here talking and I just started, I just started boasting a little bit, or maybe it's even on social media, you just start boasting. And so all of a sudden people start feeling a little, a little envious or a little less than. I have just pulled you into thinking in a sinful way. And he says, be careful. Don't you do it. Now before you say, Jim, calm down, it's not that big a deal. He just said, woe to the one through whom they come. And here's how serious he is. Verse two, it says, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. A millstone is um, different, different eras. You'd see different things, kind of, kind of the big like Indiana Jones boulder. I don't know if, my gener- if I'm generationally hitting you here, but um, like picture a huge boulder that sometimes they would push and they would push it over the grain and it would smash the grain and wheat and chaff. Or um, eventually they got it where you'd have the, you've seen the things with like a donkey that would be pulling it around and it would have this huge stone that's crushing it. The point of it is, is he picks this ridiculously heavy object and he's using hyperbole to say, if you got somebody who led somebody else into sin, who laid a trap that caused them to sin, Picture one of the hugest things he could think of, those big old stones tied around his neck and throw him in the ocean. And the idea is he can't swim with that thing around his neck. He's thinking straight to the bottom. So yes, he takes this very, very seriously. But I read it and I go, it's better that they die. Like it's better than they, that they drown. Like it would be better, I would think, if they repented and changed and came back. And, and obviously that's in here. He's simply at this point just trying to say, take this seriously. Notice what he says, then cause one of these little ones to sin. Um, Based on the context, and if you look in Luke chapter 10, he's talking about the the wise and understanding, and then he talks about the little ones um, in that contrast. And so I think in the church we could take this as maybe these are new Christians. Maybe these are people who who are seeking, but they're definitely our brothers and sisters in Christ. Does this ever happen today? where people take advantage of people, where they put temptation out in front of them. Have you heard of the prosperity gospel? People that are just down on life and trying to figure life out and a last desperate attempt, they come to some church where a pastor stands up and says, God wants to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. And they go, this is great, and here's my money, and here's my attendance, and I'll buy your books, and I'll be a part of the church, and... That is taking advantage. That is teaching a false way for them to think. That is laying a trap for them to think wrongly. There's all sorts of preachers. There's all sorts of denominations today that are calling evil good and good evil. And I don't hear people talking about it. And they are laying a trap so somebody can come in from the world and go, oh, good You've got some of the things that I'm carrying with me from my non-Christian days and I'm coming in here and I'm hearing enough of Christianity and enough of worldliness to go, this is good. And Jesus says, woe to you, it's better to have a millstone tied around your neck. This is very intimidating, by the way, when I'm standing up and preaching every, like most Sundays to stand up here and I pray every time, Lord, if I say something wrong, don't even let anybody hear it. 
That is my prayer every single week. If I say something wrong, don't let them hear it. If I say something right that people don't want to hear, let them get over it. (laughs) So one of the ways I think to just apply this would be if you're new to the faith, it might be a good idea to just spend a lot of time listening. Spend a lot of time learning. And if you're seasoned in the faith, speak up. Teach. Guide other people and do it well. So what's he saying here? In in, um, verse three, I think the next verse actually goes with what's above it. He says, pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to yourselves. And now when we read this as good Westerners, here's what we get. We go, oh good, he is saying pay attention to yourselves. Jim, you pay attention to you, you pay attention to yourself, you pay attention to yourself, you pay attention to yourself. And that's not what it says in the original Greek, and I'm going to teach it to you in Texan like I like to do. Because what it says is pay attention to y'all's selves, okay? It's plural. He's saying church. Watch out for each other. It's a tough world out there. Watch out for each other. Don't pull people in to sin. Contrast the world of saying, you're responsible, not me. Well, yeah, well, you're responsible, not me. And in the church, we say, we're probably both wrong to some degree. My tempting you in sin is wrong. A guy named John Dunn um, wrote this. He prayed in his, uh, it's called Hymn to God the Father, and I'll read a couple times. He says, Wilt thou forgive that sin which I have won others to sin and made my sin their door? Wilt thou forgive? He's asking. The whole, the whole thing is about, will you forgive this? Will you forgive this? Like it's his confession. Wilt thou forgive that sin which I have won others to sin? I have tempted other people to sin and made my sin the doorway through which they came into wrong action, wrong thinking, into sinfulness. And he's saying, will you forgive me? And of course the answer is yes. And then I think about the general lack of forgiveness in the culture, and if you want me to sum up what he's about to say, I would say this. Forgive them, forgive them, forgive them, forgive them, forgive them. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. This is not, he's coming back and earning your forgiveness. It's not saying if if he doesn't repent, then I don't have to forgive him, that's great. This is Jesus on the cross as he is there um, and watching people gambling for his meager possessions. And you remember what he says? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We don't give other people the power over us about how long our grudge against them is going to last. Forgive them, forgive them, forgive them. And I think you probably already know this, but it, it bears repeating. Vengeance never gives the satisfaction that it promises. Grudges never give the satisfaction that they promise. That bitterness towards another person never gives the satisfaction that it promises. Forgive, forgive, forgive. One commentator puts it like this. He says, from the world's point of view, a sevenfold repetition of an offense in one day, which is what Jesus just declared, must cast doubt on the genuineness of the sinner's actual repentance. But that is not the believer's concern. 
His business is forgiveness. And if you're like me, you're going, that sounds really nice. I don't got that in me. Neither did the disciples. And so they said, what's the answer? They said, the disciples said, isn't this interesting? Increase our faith. Increase our faith. Give us a deeper understanding of the gospel. Give us a deeper understanding of your forgiveness that you have for us. Help us remember that you and you alone are in heaven. Help me remember the depth of my own depravity, my own sin. Help me remember what I have been forgiven from. And help me pass that on to others. And the Lord said, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this, this mulberry tree, mulberry trees, as best as I can tell, have this really deep root system. And, um, and there's even some Jewish writings that say that they found these trees that have existed for 600 years at the time of this writing. Like, you could say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. It's not necessarily we have to have great faith, but we have to have our faith in the right object, in a great, great God. There's a lot of, lot of different questions, and, and I didn't get to all of them. I, I do want to say one thing. You can forgive somebody and not have a relationship with them still. I think that's important to say. You can have um, a business partner that does something unethical, takes a bunch of money, and you can forgive, but then if he comes back and says, can I be your business partner again, you can say no, but you can still be forgiving. If you're, say, a young woman dating a man in an abusive relationship, you can forgive him, but if he comes back and says, I promise this time, will you forgive me? You can say, I forgive you, but stay away. If you give money to a certain cause and you, know, you give it to some politician, they make promises and then um, they don't keep the promises and then they come back to you again and they say, will you forgive me? Yes, I will forgive you. Will you give me more money? No. It's an important clarification to have. So look, look at this. You've got the focus of the text is we as Christians go, we have a common rule book that we come back to. We don't finger point and say it's everybody else's responsibility. We go, what is my responsibility in this? And then finally, we forgive, forgive, forgive. When we forgive, somebody has to pay the price in forgiveness. We know this. If I'm going to forgive you, I don't get the opportunity to have vengeance on you. I I don't get that opportunity for you to have to feel the hurt that you have caused me. I might have to forego seeing immediate justice. Jesus did. Somebody has to absorb the cost and true forgiveness says, I don't even want you to have to absorb the cost. Christ has taken that cost. Christ has paid that on the cross. 